I think that one of the biggest challenges that I face is that it is still, I feel, a very competitive job market. And so making sure that your team members are all taken care of isn't always the easiest. And I think one of the observations I've had recently is that we're still a small company. And so you hire somebody, I've got two operations roles. So it's like, okay, if I hire you into operations and when you hire really talented employees, if they're ambitious and they're looking to grow, they're only going to be happy in that role for a year maybe. And then they've outgrown that role. Podcast Junkies, episode 305. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you're a regular listener, I appreciate you coming back week after week, year after year, month after month. I know that some people come, some people go, and there's always new folks finding this show. And to those, I say welcome as well. It's the show where I seek out interesting voices, friends in podcasting, and really just want them to kick back their heels and uh, talk about whatever else is on their minds, which may be their show or other projects they're working on which might be the case with today's guest. But before we go there, last week was a bit technical in nature, but I was really excited to bring on Morris Kaminsky, the co-founder of Albi. It's an extension that enables anyone to send Bitcoin over the Lightning Network. And really the whole story was around value for value and really what's happening in the podcasting 2.0 space and how Albi is making it easy for podcasters and their listeners to get involved. They, they'll spin up the wallet for you. And we go into a bit of that techie detail on the show. So I really hope you listen to it. If it was a little bit over your head, I hope it provoked you to do a little bit of research. Head on over to podcastindex.org. Test out one of the new apps at newpodcastapps.com. Anything you can do to get into this. And I'm going to be having more guests on this topic. So hopefully with each one, you'll get to learn a little bit more each time and eventually make the plunge yourself. The plan is to leave space at the end of each episode where I read out all the boostograms, what's known in the space as the boostogram corner. But in order to do that, you have to actually boost this show. If your app does not have a boost button, then get another app. But seriously, if you want to try one of these out, newpodcastapps.com, and you can listen to your favorite shows there. Fountain.fm is a good example of an app that will actually give you Satoshis, which is a micropayment of Bitcoin, when you sign up for your account. And it's a great way to test it out. And you can test it out by sending a boostogram with some Satoshis to this show. <laughs> okay, enough of the tech talk. This week, I have the pleasure of having Heather Osgood, friend of the show, return back for another conversation about all things podcasting. She's got an extensive background in radio and a love for podcasting, and she's become a really influential voice in the space. And in this episode, we discuss how entrepreneurship has changed her, the trends she's observed in the industry, and her latest project, a platform that allows folks to buy and sell podcasts. So we get into the details of that here. As always, full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com. And I'd love it if you leave a rating or a review, if you haven't done so already, at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. Nothing puts a smile on my face more than reading those out on future episodes. Don't forget to stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. Okay, before we get into this uninterrupted conversation with Heather, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. I'm grateful for the opportunity to partner with Focusrite. I'm so excited to talk about their newest line of sound cards, the Vocaster. It's got an endless list of features. I'll go through a couple here. Auto gain, easily set your levels with the click of a button. 
with more than enough gain on tap, 70 dB, no booster needed. An enhanced feature, which allows four podcaster-approved voice presets, which will bring out the best in any voice. You can silence the mic with the touch of a mute button and record phone calls, high-quality music, or any audio from your device seamlessly. You can record to a camera directly to its memory card. It's got a loopback feature to stream calls or any other audio you can think of from your computer. And three amazing packages of software, Hindenburg Lite, three months of Squadcast Pro Plus Video, and six months of Acast Influencer. What an amazing package. You can learn more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash vocaster. So my good friend, Heather, I think, is this round three? I think it might be, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Not counting the hangouts at podcast conferences where we always have a lot of fun. Yes. End up dancing too much. But (laughs) (laughs) thank you for joining me once again to talk about some new stuff. And just to catch up, because this is quite honestly the best part of the show where I just like selfishly leverage it as a platform to catch up with my podcasting friends. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I feel the same. I'm excited to chat with you today. Do you ever think back in terms of the podcasting journey and just in terms of like doors opened, like relationships made, friendships created? And because sometimes it's like we don't stop to look back because we're just so busy, especially entrepreneurs, just like next thing, next thing, next project, (laughs) next conference. Obviously, we were forced to slow down during the pandemic, but have you had a chance recently to just kind of reflect? Gosh, that's such a good question. And I would say probably not. I mean, it was so interesting too being at Podcast Movement in Dallas because it was so much fun, but I had my whole team there with me and that was very different than what I had experienced in the past. Like in the past, usually when I got into podcast movement, I'm by myself and it's a very different experience when you've got a team there with you. But I do need to reflect more on the journey that's taken place over the last, it's been almost seven years since I founded my company, which is kind of crazy. I remember. (laughs) What was the change for you when you talked about having your team at the conference Was it just more like, oh, like, is it the fact that sort of, is it like a mama bear thing? Like you have to be responsible for these people. You're responsible for like ensuring they have a good experience or you can't party as much because (laughs) you got to be up for the meetings or some combination of all of those. Yes, it is some combination of all of those. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting because I had so many people come up to me and say like, oh my goodness, your true native media team is like everywhere. I've been seeing like, there's so many of you guys. And that was really neat because having started the company and like by myself, it's terrific to have a team of people. But yes, when you're there by yourself, you can make whatever kind of choices you would like to make about how long you're going to have conversations with someone or, you know, where you're going to go. As opposed to when my team was there, I felt a responsibility to make sure that I was available if they needed me, like, were they going to have a conversation that they needed to bring me in on? Or also just making sure like, we've got a good strategy in place, and we're having all the right kind of conversations. So it's just a, a different level, I think think of interaction than I've had in the past. How many team members did you have there? I had, what we did was we did our team retreat ahead of time. So my full team came, which there were nine of us to the retreat. And then I think three of them left and the other stayed. So the operations people didn't really make a whole lot of sense for them to go to the full conference. So I think there, yeah, we're about six of us at the conference. Had you ever managed a team like that previously in your corporate life? No, this is the biggest team I've ever managed. I had, I think the most I've had prior to this has been about five employees. 
So, and right now, gosh, between employees and contractors, I think I'm up to like 13. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's still not nearly as big as so many companies are out there, but when you're managing that many people, it's a fair bit of work. Obviously, these conversations just go where they go. So (laughs) I'm just curious because I I managed people back in my E-Trade days. I think at one point I had a team of like 11 folks reporting to you. And then I had like a manager who kind of had a couple of people under him. So it was like two teams, but 11 people total. But yeah, I just think about like writing reviews, one-to-ones, 360s, and all the things that come like HR related when you start growing. Because at some point I would tell my team, I'd be like, I'm 50% responsible for your personal growth. Like the other 50% is on you to decide like, what do you need help with? Where do you need, you need a training? Something you see, just kind of be vocal about where you need help and I'll support you in that way. And Obviously, when it's the company paying for a lot of stuff, so it's easy to just promise all that stuff (laughs) and give them what they need. But I'm just wondering what have been some of the new learnings or the challenges for you as a growing business owner with a bigger team? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest challenges that I face is that it is still, I feel, a very competitive job market. And so making sure that your team members are all taken care of isn't always the easiest. And I think one of the observations I've had recently is that we're still a small company. And so you hire somebody, I've got two operations roles. So it's like, okay, if I hire you into operations and when you hire really talented employees, if they're ambitious and they're looking to grow, they're only going to be happy in that role for a year maybe. And then they've outgrown that role and there isn't anywhere else for me to put them. When you're in a bigger company, there's so many opportunities for advancements or even transferring into a different role where you could learn a different set of skills. And in a small business, there just isn't that. And so trying to figure out how to keep my ambitious, bright, talented employees engaged is really not an easy thing to do. One exercise that is probably challenging for a owner to do is to have your employee write you a resignation letter and like assume you were resigning from the company. Like what's the letter that you would write like to me or something like that. And it's really interesting because if you think about it, they'd probably say like mention some of the things that they didn't have anymore or that they were struggling with or that they were like they found challenging or just like out you know just kind of this about outgrowing the position or i've always wanted to have a job in this field and now it presented itself so it's an interesting exercise to kind of like not that you want people to have that mindset of just like getting ready to leave but just sort of being proactive and saying you know if you were to leave what would be the reason you'd probably give as resigning or one of the things they always say is to make sure you're always like It's kind of like you're doing the job, but you're also doing it in a way where you're going to not be the person to do it in the future. Right. Kind of like you're developing yourself in a way that just sort of like eliminates your own position because it's now grown and it's advanced. And it's just like interesting ways, because I think to your point, having the nine to five hat on is different because when you're in a company with 3000 employees, there's always something to people to try out and new opportunities. So I think... As business owners, it's tough to think like if your best performer is leaving, but if you really see them like as the superstars that they are and that they and their potential for what they can be, like you almost want to be like, you don't want to like clip their wings. You'd be like, okay, if it's time for you to move on, it's time for you to move on and good luck with your new endeavors. And I always had this idea of like having people make sure that they could 
teach other people what it is they do. And so there's always that, like, you never want to, you don't never want single point of failure in your business as well. Right. I totally agree with you. And I think what has been really challenging for me is that I don't want to hire people just for the sake of hiring people. And I don't want to create like a whole level of management just because it's like, oh, we need these roles and, or we need somewhere for you to grow to, and you want to grow to a management position. So let's promote you to management and we'll just hire people under you. And so for me as a small business, I think that that's been a big consideration is how many people are too many people and what roles do we really need? And how is this particular role actually going to move the company forward? Um, and I totally agree with you, making sure that everybody's cross-trained because in a small business, yeah. I've had employees in the past where they ran a lot. And then when they leave, then you're left with a lot of pieces to pick up. So fun, fun. Being a small business owner is so much fun every day. <laughs> Do you have any models or that you like to follow? I know a lot of people like to recommend traction in terms of this idea of building like your number two person who is sort of like your key to help you kind of delegate what you need to get done in the team. Or do you feel like it's more important for you to have like a one-to-one connection with the folks on your team since it is small? That is such a good question. And I actually am working on that very model right now, because as I'm sure we're going to talk about, I've started this other new business and I love content creation. I love speaking. I really want personally to grow my thought leadership within the industry. And I can't do all of those things when I'm managing every single team member. And so that is my kind of my next move that I'm working on right now is how do I create a number two within the company that's going to manage and oversee the day-to-day, the personnel um, staffing so that I'm not, I'm not the one that's doing all of it, which is really a big part of my job today. So. Something that I've been more intentional of recently is working on my writing and kind of like thought leadership. And some of these words, it's a term my, my partner Natalie has to use, are like mouth barfy. Like you hear these terms, you're like influencer, <laughs> thought leader. <laughs> but so I'm, I'm spending more time on Twitter because of like, it helps me to focus and hone my writing skills. And there's a couple of people that I follow and I'm following the space that have built like a solopreneur business. that's like a million dollar a year business. And it's just him. And he's just, and he, over the course of his visibility that he's built on the platform, he's got like courses now and other things that he's been building off that platform. And I think it's fascinating. And so I'm committed to like publishing like three tweets a day and I'm doing a long form blog post, which I'll then repurpose into like medium stuff like LinkedIn and actually medium.com and then even taking snippets of it. So this idea of like creating like this high level thought piece once a week, and it's been interesting because like I took a first pass. I had a journal that I have just for like writing it. And ironically enough, it's it's the Focus Right journal. So it's helpful <laughs> from Focus Right. Thank you, Focus Right, my sponsor. They sent me like a nice gift card, but I mean like a gift box. But I basically wrote like the first blog post when it was like 10 pages. I was just like, okay. And I just talked about like my career journey. It was interesting to like write about it. And I was just like, well, this is bringing up some stuff. <laughs> so, so it's interesting, uh, you know, to your point about just building thought leadership. And I think it's one of those things that I'm probably doing it in reverse of how some people who are just getting started, they're trying to build that thought leadership and then they build services off of it. So I've got the, the company now, but I think I just want to build something that, yeah, maybe I guess has a lasting legacy. One of the concepts that the guy that I follow talks about is we're all here on this planet to like learn and expand ourselves and expand the consciousness 
of the planet. And the way you do that is by teaching others, like, and kind of showing your journey and showing like the ups and downs, like where you failed, where you succeeded, why you succeeded, how you succeeded. And you're just kind of painting the picture and, and showing folks. And you're essentially bringing people up like who are just like one rung below you there. Cause you're not trying to be like some sort of guru or you need to be like 10 steps ahead of everyone. A lot of times you just showing that person that one step they need to get where you are. And then you're doing the same thing. You're trying to just get that one step in developing in your own self-development. So it's been something that's resonating with me of just like, I almost feel like it's a responsibility to share like what I've learned and in the hopes it'll help somebody. Cause you know, obviously we know we can't take all this information with us. So might as well leave some of it behind and, and see who it helps. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that the older I get too, that I just keep thinking so much about what my contribution has been. And I really feel that entrepreneurship and business ownership has changed my life in so many ways. And some days I think it's changed it for the positive. And then other days I think, God, wouldn't it be great if I just had a really high paying job somewhere? Yeah, I know that feeling. (laughs) But I think that what it has really allowed me to do is it's given me the freedom and flexibility to create the type of life that I want. And I do agree that being able to share that information is very important and being able to share the journey. I think what's been so nice for me when it comes to content in particular is that kind of pre-podcasting, I didn't really know what to talk about. And now I'm so passionate about podcasts and the role that they play in my life and the role they play in the company, the companies that I'm building. It feels so natural for me to talk about that. And what I'm trying to figure out is how do I interweave that knowledge with my entrepreneurial knowledge? And also, really, I think one thing that kind of bubbled to the top for me yesterday that was interesting is that I am not my businesses, right? It's like you create these businesses, but I'm not that business. I'm just the contributor to that business. Yes. And being able to see the companies as separate entities from who I am and being able to separate myself. So if my company fails or succeeds, that is, but it also isn't necessarily a reflection on who I am as a human being, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But it's just, it's really interesting, I think, the lessons that you learn and the journeys that you take. And I love what you said that it's not about like, oh, I have to have, I have to be impacting 10,000 people. <laughs> really, it yeah. could just be one person, right? That you're having a conversation with in one day that you're like, hey, like this has impacted my life. And that, that's really all that matters at the end of the day. You recently shared your experience uh, now that you live in Florida, having left your family and what you went through. And you want to talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, that was such an interesting experience because one of our larger agency partners is kind of in the Midwest and I had been wanting to go and see them for a while, but because of COVID and different things, I hadn't been able to go. And We made the decision, we're going to go the end of September. And so on Monday, what day was it? On Monday, September 26th, I got on an airplane, even though I knew there was a a big hurricane headed toward Florida, right where I live. And I was very much on the fence about whether or not I should go or whether I should stay. And we've lived in Florida for a year and a half, so I've never been through a hurricane. And where I live in Sarasota... 
everyone says, oh, hurricanes don't hit here. Don't worry about it. Hurricanes don't hit here. So I'm like, people tend to build things up. People tend to make them bigger than they really are. Like, I'm just going to go. So I went and on Tuesday, I had a day full of meetings, which was great. Terrific, great experience. Made some really good connections with my agency partners. And then Tuesday night, it was like, oh, Hurricane Ian is headed straight for Sarasota. And I'm like, holy crap. Like my husband and my kids are in our house in Florida. I am not there. And so Wednesday all day, like the storm literally was raging on top of them and I am in a different state. And then I can't get a flight home because of course all the flights are canceled and the, the airport got damaged, like all this stuff, right? It was like a whole saga, but They made it through and I made it through. But I think as a business owner, you're faced with lots of challenging decisions about what is going to be best and how, and I think the difference, the very big difference between being a business owner and being an employee is that when you're an employee, someone tells you what you have to do, right? Like, oh, you have to go to this meeting and you, I mean, of course you could say, oh yeah, but I don't want to leave my family. I mean, there's those conversations, but when you're a business owner, you can make whatever choice you want to make that day. And you have to make a decision for yourself, for your family, for your company that is going to be the best decision. And trying to weigh all those is challenging sometimes. And so some of the photos, I have a friend of mine that lives in Naples, but I saw someone else post someone that, something that uh, they live in Naples too, but I just happened to see it in the Facebook feed or Instagram. And it was like, it looked, I don't know if it was a screen door or just a window and it was the tall ones and the water line was three quarters of the way up the window. And I'm just like, thinking, <laughs> I'm like, well, if that's a door, like a, it can't be a sliding door. Cause I'm like, there's no seal that would hold that. And it's just the thought of like looking outside your window and seeing like the water line that high, it's gotta be like very nerve wracking. And I mean, I, the closest I, I came to experiencing stuff like that was when I lived through hurricane Sandy in uh, New York city. And that was like the baddest we had ever gotten hit. I remember looking out at Avenue C and normally there's like cars there, but we looked out and there was, the water was so high that there was like a, one of those PT, like police boats, like with lights on, like on the street, like just looking for people, you know, to see if everything was okay. And it was wild. And it's very humbling to be reminded of just how powerful mother nature is and how little control we have over, over it. It's very true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're super lucky. There really wasn't a lot of flooding where we were at. It was just the wind that was pretty crazy. But Florida is so flat. I mean, the water just comes and comes and comes. <laughs> There's nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah. Have you, what's the strangest uh, animal you've seen so far? I love armadillos coming from California. There's no armadillos and they're like, they're so cute because they'll come up to our lanai screen and they just make these cute little noises and they're not like, they don't have teeth. They can't bite you or anything. They're just, I think they're so super cute. (laughs) No alligators or snakes there. I definitely, yeah, we have alligators in our back (laughs) pond, but you get over those pretty quick. (laughs) That's funny. Spoken like a true Floridian. (laughs) That's right. So coming back to podcasting, it, you, you've spoken to obviously the industry itself, the growth of it by virtue of like how you're growing your company. If you had to explain to like an outsider, what is it that you're seeing in the industry, where the growth is coming from, or just what the trends are, but sort of to kind of recap what's been happening, what we see from the inside over the past couple of years, what's been standing out for you? Yeah. So in terms 
of the trends, I think that we've seen so much consolidation and podcasting was created to be this very, I imagine it as like a very open source kind of environment. And we've had so many large companies coming in and doing so much consolidation. There's a lot of conversation right now about how these bigger companies and Spotify in particular is really influencing the industry. I think that that has been really fairly significant. And I really do think it'll be interesting to see how this kind of recession slowdown period in our economy is going to impact that if we'll see less acquisitions happen. But I feel like that those sorts of influences have also really kind of dovetailed in with this idea of video becoming much more prominent within the podcast space. And I have a very mixed feeling. I have a lot of mixed feelings about video and audio. Here we are, we're recording in video right now. And I know you mentioned you'll be releasing it as an audio, but recording it face-to-face over video, being able to see you is so much better in my opinion than if we were just doing audio. And I think that from a consumer's perspective, there is a lot that video can deliver that's really powerful. But I had a woman come up to me at Podcast Movement and she said, I want to start a podcast, but I only want to do audio. I don't want to do video. She said, the reason that I'm interested in podcasts is because I like audio and I don't want that video piece. So do you think I have to do video? And I feel like that's kind of a question on a lot of people's minds right now is do I have to do video? And a big question I have is where are the lines going to be drawn? When is it going to be a video channel? And when is it an audio channel? And I do think as an industry, as much as I like video personally, I think as an industry, it is really important for us to push that audio first piece because I consume podcasts because I like the audio piece. I like walking around the house, doing chores, listening to a podcast or going on a log walk or a long drive. And you can't do that with video. So I think that that's really interesting in terms of trends. And then um, from an advertising perspective, I definitely think that we're seeing a lot of more of the programmatic um, influence coming. And my prediction is that programmatic is just going to continue to increase. And really, that's the concept of just having ads digitally inserted in your podcast that are announcer read more radio type ads. I think that there certainly is a demand for that. And I do think that it could potentially change the face of podcasting and the way that we're kind of understanding ads and how they relate to podcasts. But yeah, I think you were saying it's changed, like it has the potential, I think you're saying changing the face of podcasting, the programmatic. Yeah. Yeah. The ads, because programmatic ads are getting away from that influencer piece, I don't know how it will really affect it. I think it's the positive in that it's going to bring more dollars into the space. And that I think is definitely something that we all want and need. Also, it's very easy for the podcaster because it's just like YouTube, right? Like you just sign up for ads, they put ads in your YouTube channel and away you go. So I think if we can get to that place with podcast advertising, there's a lot to be said for the value of that, but it also will change the effectiveness of campaigns and the way that audiences relate to them. 
You mentioned like you see an increase in demand for programmatic, but is that demand coming from networks and big shows that have invested a lot of money and are really like interested in seeing like a return on their investment and looking to monetize it as quickly as possible? No, in terms of the demand, I'm saying really it's from the advertiser side of things. So okay. we have new agencies that are like, hey, how do I buy programmatic ads? And then really from a very kind of high technical level, bigger companies are just wanting more more supply. So they're wanting to figure out how to get connected to more podcasts to put those programmatic ads in. And I'm assuming you would differentiate between programmatic, which is inserted all the copy from the sponsor, as opposed to dynamic host read ads as well. Yes, correct. And dynamic ad insertion, the technology of dynamic ad insertion continues to grow. And I find more and more hosting providers are offering that service, which I think is really important and really great. But it doesn't, if you're using dynamic ad insertion, it can just as easily be a host read ad that you've created as opposed to an announcer read pre-produced ad. So those are the differentiators. And really like if you're doing host read ads with dynamic ad insertion technology, it still has a very native organic feel to it. Yeah. And so what percentage of the, the companies that you're working with are new to the podcasting space? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say that it's probably about at least 30, if not 40% oh, wow. of the companies are new. Yeah. 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 How, so then there's part of the onus I imagine is then just educating them on what it is they're getting into. And then probably like some sense of responsibility, not that you're the spokesperson for podcasting, but also like behooves the industry that they have a good experience because otherwise if they get soured on their first experience with podcast advertising they'll just be like oh yeah this tried that doesn't work right no absolutely and so i try really hard to lean on the education piece what i find with podcast advertising just like any other form of advertising is that often advertisers expect instant results and realistically, you need to create a test period. You need to figure out what's going to work for your particular company and what's not going to work for your company. I know that with your vertical farming podcast, it's very easy to identify companies that align so closely with the content that their goals are very different um, because there's a lot of branding opportunity, education opportunity that happens with a sponsorship like that. Whereas when we're looking at just a lot of direct-to-consumer brands that enter the space, and that's really, I would say, a lot of what we see is direct-to-consumer is really big, software is big, financial services, but they're looking for a direct return, and they're not necessarily always advertising on those really matchy-matchy podcasts. A lot of times... It's just that demographic. And so we need to make sure that they understand when they come into the space that we need to test the campaigns across a variety of shows to see where they're going to get traction. And then where we see traction, try to double down on that as opposed to coming in and saying, oh, hey, we advertised on five shows that didn't work, like podcast advertising just isn't successful. So we really do try to lean on that education piece as much as we can. 
And do you have uh, companies that are coming in? I imagine if they've got departments that are have done advertising before, they've got experience with other shows or with other mediums. So they probably are coming with a mindset of ensuring that there's reporting built in or accountability or just measurement, right, to see if it's proving effective. How are they seeing this podcasting in comparison to, I don't know what else is popular now, if people still do newspaper or radio ads or like other mediums, but do you get any, any perspective into like how they see the benefit of podcasting versus other traditional mediums? Yeah. And I think that most of the time we tend to get compared a lot to digital. So social or Google ads, things like that would be probably the biggest comparisons. And I would say that what I have heard over and over is the conversion. The conversions are different with podcasts. So every medium is going to have an audience that they reach strongly that is going to bring a certain type of customer. And what advertisers tend to see with podcast advertising in particular in podcast audiences is the audiences tend to be, they are still early adopters. They are still people who want to maybe buy the newest thing that's out there. They tend to be higher income earners. They tend to be more educated. And so those buyers are going to be different. We tend to see that they spend more, they become more loyal customers. So it isn't always apples to apples when you're comparing different types of advertising because the customers that they deliver aren't always going to be the same. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I imagine when they see success, do you see success with specific types of campaigns or specific types of shows or specific types of ad reads that perform better than others? Yeah. I mean, it's across the board, right? So I think it's really important when you create a podcast ad campaign that you have a level of frequency. So you can't just come run ads for a day or a week or even a month and expect to see great results. So making sure that you're creating a campaign that's long enough will create better results. Making sure that the host really likes your product and is going to do a quality ad read is really important. We try our best to monitor the ad reads that our hosts are creating if somebody gets on an ad and they're like, yeah, go buy this product. Like, are you really going to, as opposed to when they're actually genuinely excited about the product that really comes across. I do find that there are types of podcasts that convert better than others. It seems to me like anytime you've got an audience that is really engaged in the content in particular, they tend to convert better. And When I say content, I really do mean that they're very invested in the community of the content. So it's not like, oh, I just happened to listen to this finance show because I wanted to listen to a show about IRAs or something. It's like, no, I'm part of this community. I'm on their, their newsletter. I'm on their Facebook group. I listen to their podcast. Those types of hosts and those types of shows tend to convert the best because I really believe the audience is already used to taking advice from that podcaster. And so it makes sense that they're going to respond to the ads. Yeah. And it's almost like if it's any podcasters paying attention closely to this conversation, it just behooves you to ensure that that community is something that you're building or thinking about. 
in your show and whatever the it's mighty networks circle facebook groups whatever the latest community tool is it's newsletters it's meetups and i think that goes to if you're thinking about that ahead of time it's important obviously for the for growing your show but if you do have an eye towards growing it to the point where you're attracting sponsors having that built-in community is going to be something that's going to help you convert those ads at a higher percentage which is going to make your sponsor happier and, and want them to come back right exactly Okay. New project as an entrepreneur. You can't stop thinking of new ideas. <laughs> Talk to me about the origin story here. How long was this percolating? Yeah, for sure. So we launched the podcast broker at Podcast Movement in August in Dallas. And I created the podcast broker and it has been percolating for several years yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> because I would work with these shows and I think, okay, as a business owner, one of the things that is always just a little bit challenging for me is that podcasters don't approach their shows like a business. And I understand a lot of times their passion projects, their hobbies, but the minute that you want to monetize your show, it really does become a business and you should treat it like a business. And the reason I think you should treat it like a business is because it has value. You've contributed a lot of time, effort, and energy into it. And if you can get it to make you money, why not? Right. And so I would see these hosts who would come to me and they'd be like, yeah, I think I'm done. I don't want to produce the show anymore. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You have like the number one bridal show on iTunes. You can't just stop. Like you need to sell the show. So I would tell people you need to sell your podcast. And it was like, they had no record, like no registration. They didn't understand what I was saying. I'm like, someone should buy what you have created, but there really wasn't an outlet for people to buy and sell podcasts. We've got companies like Gimlet and Wondery where they're massive organizations that are being purchased. And so it's possible, obviously we see that people buy podcasts, but when you take it to the independent podcaster level, there really hadn't been a place for people to buy and sell podcasts. And there are sites like Flippa, for instance, where you can buy and sell websites. We buy and sell all kinds of digital products. And to me, creating a company where we can buy and sell podcasts just seems like a natural. So, yeah. Obviously, having been friends for so long, we get to see a lot of the familiar faces. So it was, it was nice to see. I, I know that James mentioned he's an advisor. Gordon's on there. And it's nice to see the team from RSS, Alberto, and Ben as well. So can you talk a little bit about how like those conversations developed with those folks to get them involved in the project? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to give a lot of props to Ben and Alberto from RSS.com because I think that they're great guys. And I was talking to them and just like you as an entrepreneur, I've got way more ideas than I have hours in the day of things I could do and create. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I was talking to them at one event that we were at and I said, hey, I've got this idea and I think it's a really good one. And they said, we think it's a really good idea too. Why don't you let us help you? And so I co-founded the business with them. And Alberto in particular is the tech guy that's going to really be able to help us build out a platform. And also they're just, they've been so great to work with. They have both been through the process of building big businesses and having successful exits. And I think that what I've learned from them that has been a super takeaway is building a minimally viable product, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. as someone with ideas, I want to build a castle. And it's like, 
well, why don't we just put up a tent and see if somebody comes, right? (laughs) If people come to our tent, then we'll talk about building a castle. So I think that it's been really great to work with their influence and then being able to have James Cridland and Gordon Firemark as advisors has been great because they understand the industry super well and they're able to just contribute to the conversation. So yeah, it's been a really terrific team for sure. Yeah, I connected with Alberto and Ben a couple of years ago because I was just like, I think, you know, me, I'm always like looking at like who's doing stuff in the space. And I'm just like, who's this company? What's this company? And so we did a little bit of work together. They had they wanted some feedback on some early UI stuff, but we maintained that relationship. And I think we might be working on something together, which is kind of still in the works, but hopefully be able to see what we can partner on. But I think they're just great guys. And I got to find, connect with Ben at Podcast Movement. We were hanging out for a bit there. So I had already chatted with Alberto before. So they're just both their energy is just really infectious and they're just really like giving they're really supportive of that podcasting 2.0 initiative as well. And I know I always hear them contributing to that initiative. So they're doing good things in the space. And it's fun to see that you've partnered with them because I know that they're really smart guys. Can you talk a little bit about like what you've built so far? And so far, I know it's still early days, what the response has been. Yeah, absolutely. So what we have currently is a platform where podcasters can go on and they can submit their podcast for an evaluation. And so when someone submits their show for an evaluation, we receive the form and manually go through and look at the show and say, okay, how much is this podcast actually worth? So we're looking at things like how many episodes have you, have you got under your belt? What kind of downloads are you getting? What kind of revenue are you currently creating? What kind of platform do you have? So, and when I say that, I mean, like, do you have a nice website? Is there branding that goes along with it? Is there a reason why someone would want to buy your show instead of just start their own, which I think is really the big question, right? So how can we look at what you've created and say, yes, this is worth me purchasing it instead of trying to start from scratch. So really that's the best entry point, especially for podcasters that are looking to get their show evaluated. And then on the flip side, we have the buyer piece, right? So people who are interested in buying podcasts. And I think the thing that has been most surprising to me, honestly, is how many buyers have come to us. Really? Yeah. I really like, I expected (laughs) And maybe this all just comes from my sales background that like, if you're going to sell something, you kind of really have to fight for that sale. But we've had almost as many buyers come and ask about buying shows as we've had people who want to sell their podcasts. Um, Not the same. We have more sellers than buyers, but a lot of people are interested. And I think one of the most interesting pieces is that I expected that And partly because of the conversations I had had that a podcaster would get to the end of their rope kind of and say like, okay, I'm at the end. I don't want to produce any more episodes. Somebody buy it and take it over, which I feel like that's like one of the big conversations is, can you get a new host? Like, what does that look like? Are you going to have the same listenership? But what I've really found is that the buyers are not necessarily looking for shows where they're going to take over from the host. A lot of the buyers are wanting to buy podcasts with established hosts that are going to stay in the show. And on the flip side, I've had a lot of podcasters, you know, I had a conversation with a gentleman today where he said, 
I want to keep podcasting, but I don't feel like I'm making the progress that I want and I want some support. So I want to be part of something other than just me podcasting in my basement. I want somebody to come and help me in this. I'm not wanting to own it by myself anymore. So I feel like that's a really interesting connection that truthfully I wasn't expecting. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's one of the reasons why podcasters look to join networks too, right? To get that visibility. But it would make sense, like if it's working as a buyer, the last thing you'd want to do is buy it and just have all the listeners go because they came for the host, right? They came for that personality. And so I think, you know, there are folks that are had were forced to become entrepreneurs to figure out this whole podcasting journey. But at the end of the day, all they want to do is just like record a show and talk about what they love to talk about. And so I imagine some of the ways it's going to flush itself out is, and then you can tell me if this is what's happening is that they're buying the show and then they just like pay the host like a salary basically <laughs> to host the show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or do some sort of a revenue split with them where they say, Hey, but if the person and really the buyers are folks that want to build networks, but instead of just building a network, they want to own the shows. So that I think that's the piece that we're saying. And yeah, I mean, essentially as the host, then now you're their contractor working to produce their show. Do you see the majority of folks that are interested are people from networks who are just looking for new shows um, and obviously having this platform and you doing the due diligence is helpful for them. And I'm sure it's a similar agency model. You just take a percentage of whatever the final sale is. But I think there's something to be said for you doing all the like the research into whether the show is viable, because I'm sure you wouldn't put shows on the platform that you haven't vetted properly. So that's, I'm sure that's helpful for the buyers as well. Yeah, absolutely. So they're not having to go and do that heavy lifting. I think too, that I've been surprised, like some of the shows that have reached out or shows that I recognize and I'm like, Oh, I thought I wouldn't think that that like successful podcaster would be ready to sell. Right. But so I think that you don't know who wants to sell their show. And so as a buyer, it's nice to be able to come to a location where you could find a variety of shows that have been vetted that we know like, yeah, this show would be worth purchasing as opposed to just some approaching some random person, essentially. Yeah. Have you made any sales? Have any sales been made through the platform yet? Not yet, but we're okay. getting very close. <laughs> so yeah. Do you have individuals coming to like take over a show or interested in buying a show? Yes, I have had just some individuals that are interested, okay. That's interesting. but most of them are connected to some bigger company. Yeah, it would make sense. Like, for example, like if I put my vertical farming host hat on, like if I was able to like raise funding, for example, to a media network around those kind of shows, and if there was shows in your platform that met that or something like that, or maybe even saying, hey, Heather, can you vet the show for me? <laughs> just kind of like use it as a one-off resource as well. I think I could see that being valuable as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so what's next steps? Are you going to be doing a bigger push? It's interesting with marketplaces, right? Because you have buyers and sellers and you have to like, there's this always trying to grow both sides of the market at the same time, which is challenging. So what's on the roadmap for the next six months? Yeah. So we're really doing things in a very high touch way right now. I want to make sure that the podcasts that we're selling are in a good place. I want to make sure that I understand the buyers. So right now it is in a very high touch place. So I would say that on the roadmap certainly is growing to a place where it is a more transactional platform where 
someone could go and list their podcast and say, hey, I've got this show. It's up for sale for $5,000. Buy it now type thing. And then a buyer could come on and just say like, okay, I want to just buy it. Right. And there's not a lot of like back and forth. So really that's a big goal for us. And then right now I'm trying to have a lot of just podcast internal type conversations like you and I are having and trying to get in as many newsletters as possible. But we certainly are going to be marketing the services in a much bigger way because of course, like anything, if you build it, you have to market it. You can't expect that people are just going to stumble upon it. How much more work has this been for you? Is it is it sort of what you expected? Or like, I mean, I know as an entrepreneur, like when you come up with the idea and then you're starting to put it out there and then you realize, oh, I'm building another business. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. It has been a little bit more work than I expected, to be honest. I think my intention, obviously, is to have a hands-off platform that isn't going to be as much work. But in early days, you could, just like anything, you could invest as much time into something as you want to or have the ability to. And so I think that certainly growth in any sort of company is directly proportional to the time and energy that you're able to put into it. And when I think about growing businesses, I do feel like one of the big mistakes that people make a lot is not taking calculated action. I think that oftentimes I see people who've started businesses that they start something and maybe they put like, an, or just like podcasts, like we were talking about, it's like you put out like this initial push of energy and then either things don't happen like you hoped they would, or maybe it's harder. I've got true native media that I've had for almost seven years. And while it has its own challenges, I could run that business pretty well, right? Like I've been doing it for seven years. Anytime you come up with something new, there's a whole new list of questions, right? Like, how are we going to operate this business? What's, oh, somebody asked you a question. What's the answer to that? Oh, shoot. I I don't know the answer (laughs) to that question. Let me come up with one. So I think you have to be able to push through that initial challenging space or that like uncomfortable time to get to the other side of a more established systems and process space. So that's definitely where we're at. Yeah, you almost have to go back to that mindset, like the eternal student and just like being willing to acknowledge the things that you don't know, and then knowing when to ask for help. And you're just kind of starting that cycle over, especially with something new. But I feel like it's the bane of every entrepreneur's existence It's just like the ideas, the ideas just keep coming up or the opportunities, right? And also, because if you're in an industry, it's interesting, because we both come into this industry, and I started in 2014. But it's amazing to see what's possible by virtue of like the relationships you foster and cultivate throughout the course of like being in this business and being in this industry. If, I'm not talking about people who are just podcasting, but people who have like some sort of business related to podcasting. Cause then you start to see like people coming up at the same pace as you, or just new people who are entering the space who are, who are in that collaborative mindset as well. And just all these relationships and just seeing how giving everyone in the spaces is and just it's just fun to see like folks like James and Gordon like all folks that I've spoken to and just friends with and then just kind of seeing that collaborative effort is really nice I would say that if there's one thing that I've learned in my career is that it really all just boils down to relationships right and I think what has been so wonderful about the podcast industry for me in particular is that in my past careers and jobs I was very focused locally, which is great, right? But it's so neat to be able to develop national and international relationships. And the podcast space is so much more, I would say, intimate than you realize it is 
until you start getting into the space and networking. And it's really great to be able to create new projects that I know this project is going to benefit podcasters out there that are looking for support and looking for income. And it's also really going to help in terms of the industry and creating relationships and creating opportunities for us all to work together. So I love that. Yeah. You mentioned $5,000 as a potential sum for a show. Do you, have you seen like a price point that's pretty high in terms of what people can expect for a successful show? Yeah. I mean, I have one show with quite a large audience and they're wanting 350,000. So yeah, I mean, truthfully, I would say the income that is coming through on the podcast is higher in a lot of respects than I thought that it would be. And then of course the asking price is going to go along with that. There's a huge scale. Like I certainly have had people who are like, I started a show on Anchor in June and I have 10 <laughs> listeners. Like how much can you sell it for? And I'm like, uh, yeah. yeah, no, we can't sell that. Sorry. But then on the flip side, like having these bigger shows with large audiences and large dollar amounts has been really surprising. I would say, I don't think we have any shows right now that are selling for less than about 10,000. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because, and I wonder how dependent that is if it's driven by, if it's a host driven show or if it's a topic driven show, obviously where you can interchange hosts and, and then it's what we talked about earlier where the host wants to stay, but it's something for podcasters who are listening to think about like, you know, having this idea of like creating a show, but creating it in a way where maybe you don't have to be the host of it, but you can like build it up and build the following. And it's nice to know that there's now like a resource, like the podcast broker to, to think about in the future as you get, even as you're starting the show, you know, if, if you can successfully build up something because you have experience in an industry, there's something to think about. Like it may not be something that you'll always have to do if you can do a good job of building up that following. Yeah, absolutely. And like you and I have talked about with your podcast and vertical farming, I really do think that there is a market to build and sell a podcast to an industry, right? It's like, especially if you look at these very specific niche industries, if you were in a particular insurance branch, for instance, and you created a podcast that was all speaking to that segment of insurance, you could definitely take a show like that and sell it to an insurance company who would want to pay top dollar for it because you've got an established show. They're not going to have to create. There's thought leadership in there. There's all kinds of different potentials with a, a show like that. So yeah, the opportunities are endless. <laughs> well, the site is thepodcastbroker.com and people can submit their shows if they're looking or, or if people are interested in buying and or selling can, there's both sides there and they can fill out the appropriate forms online anywhere else, anywhere else to send folks. If you're looking to buy and sell, definitely the podcastbroker.com is the best place to go. And if you're looking to just connect with me, I'm LinkedIn's kind of my jam. That's where I'm usually at. So if you're interested in talking to me further, feel free to, to message me over there and happy to chat. Well, we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes as usual. And I want to thank you again for just always fun to just reminisce about good times in podcasting and just exciting to share our entrepreneurial journeys and Obviously, I have stuff to share with you now as well, but that's Podcast Junkies After Dark, and you'll have to like pay extra for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. I appreciate you as a friend, Heather, and thank you for coming on. And it's exciting to see what you have in the works that's beneficial for the podcast community, which is always a good thing. 
Well, thank you so much for having me on, Harry. I appreciate the conversation as well. And it's nice that we were able to explore a few different avenues and different paths instead of just one, one topic. So thanks. You're very welcome. Thanks again to Heather for making it back to the show and talking about her new project. Always appreciated when friends and guests spend an hour of their valuable time with me, and I hope you appreciate it as well. Support what they do by checking out podcastjunkies.com. See the show notes we've created, the recap of the conversation, timestamps, takeaways, any resources mentioned as well. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil, cedarsoil.com for his fantastic list of music. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Vocaster line. Learn more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash vocaster. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co about how a podcast can be helpful for your business or brand. And if you made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with True Native Heather in honor of her agency, True Native Media. So that's True Native Heather. That's the hashtag. And you can tag us at podcast underscore junkies and Heather at True Native Media. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Talk to you next week. 